You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Our Father in heaven, I'm asking you to bless our hour here, mostly by giving me wisdom to know what to say and what not to say, also by speaking to the minds of those here, Teach them what you will, even if it differs from what I say. Strengthen the influence of whatever I teach that is useful and weaken the influence of whatever misrepresents you or your cause. I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was sitting there in Malaysia in a room that was similar shape to this, but that was the only similarity. It didn't have any walls. It just had corner posts and a, a roof. A lot of buildings in Asia are made like that because it's the nicest way to get air conditioning there. And so I was sitting there, and there was a man in front speaking, like I'm speaking to you, but you're paying more attention to me than, than I paid to him because behind him was a troop of monkeys. And what I saw there in that situation is that there was a very steep mountain, one, two, three, four, five, six, so there's seats for all of you and then one more seat left after that, and that's it. And uh, but you won't be sitting together, I'll tell you that. We got one, two, three, four, yeah, yeah there's some around. Welcome. Uh, yeah, I'll be doing it as necessary. So four, so there's plenty of rooms. Now don't forget, you're in the midst of a story. So. There's a, there's a mountain right here. It's very steep. And most of the trees on this mountain are about 20 years old because someone came to Malaysia and just logged the place of all the great, huge jungle trees that are, would have been so gorgeous to see. Trees, you know, you can hardly imagine the size of those kind of trees, but they're not there anymore, so you won't see them. But in the base of that valley are huge granite boulders. And those boulders were difficult for the machinery of the loggers to get around. So trees that were growing out of the boulders weren't cut. And as a consequence, the biggest trees in this area grow out of these boulders. Because they have a 60-year or 100-year head start on all the other trees. Does that make sense to any of you what I'm saying? So... The type of monkeys that are in this forest are leaf-eating monkeys, and this particular group of them learned that they could climb here and they could manage to jump this. And they were really enjoying themselves in that tree. It had so many juicy little baby leaves, just what they love to eat, and, you know, monkeys copy each other. The first one to do it, all the rest were doing it. They, they all made it to the tree happily. But on this tree, I mean, I drew trees the way that people who don't know how to draw do, but if you had drawn the tree correctly, it, there would have been other limbs, and, and there was one limb right here that's relevant to this story. One monkey that was here noticed that no one was eating the leaves on this limb. So he jumped down, it was about uh, 10 or 11 feet, and began eating, and he enjoyed himself. But when I saw that, I knew that he was in trouble. Because monkeys don't have the kind of claws that squirrels do. They can't climb up a tree like this. They can't climb down the tree. 
Monkeys climb the way you do by grabbing branches and swinging and jumping. And that, that's how they do their thing. And there was no way from this branch that he could get back up to this one. And there was nothing to jump to. He had just put himself in a little trap. And he didn't even know it. For about almost as long as the guy in front was talking, uh, he was eating here peacefully. And when he was done, he went to the end to look for a place to jump, and there wasn't any. So he went back to the trunk, couldn't find anywhere to go, and he just went back and forth for quite a while in denial. Have you ever been in denial? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I, he, he just couldn't accept the fact that he was really in bad shape. But eventually, he, just, he, he accepted it. It took maybe 10, 15 minutes. And when he did, he decided to do what you might try to do. He tried to put his arms around that big trunk and to shimmy down. And he made it only about to here before he fell. And uh, do you have Bibles with you here in the seminar? Look up Proverbs 22, verse 3. Proverbs 22, verse 3. I have a Bible too. I should also turn to be a good example to you. If you don't have one, just listen. Proverbs 22, verse 3, it says, A prudent man, don't you like that word prudent? Like in England, prude has become almost like a, almost an insult. But really, it's, it's, it should be a badge that we'd, we'd enjoy to have, to be pr prudent. It says, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself but the simple pass on and are what? What I learned from this monkey is the value of foresight. That it's valuable to be looking ahead and to see what's going to cause trouble. What's going to lead the wrong way. The monkey would have been better off before he went down to think about what comes next. You know, I mostly deal with young people, and mostly you aren't young people, but mostly I deal with young people. And when I ask them, what are some things that people do where they don't show enough foresight? They come up with a group of answers. You might come up with a different group. Can you think of anything people do that doesn't show enough foresight? Marriage. Marriage. There, there's one, right? Yeah. Why, why so much noise about that one? Yeah, but it's for real. That in, in marriage, many people seem to think that all that matters is warmth and fuzziness and chemistry. And uh, I had a call from a lady in New York once. She wanted me to talk to her husband. You see, he was Catholic and she was Adventist. And they had made a deal when they got happily married he would attend mass and she would attend church and that worked out pretty well, but they had a, a baby. Yeah. And the, as the baby got older, he went to both mass and church. But he was coming up to the age where it was time for him to make his first confession to a priest. And mom didn't want him to make a confession to a priest and dad did. So mom wanted me to talk to dad. Instead, I talked to mom. I told her that your husband has as much right to raise your son as you do. He has as much right to make a decision about your child as you do. And there's no way that I can tell him that he should violate his own conscience or do what he thinks is wrong just because of what you think is right. 
I didn't need to tell her, but it was definitely implied when I said that there was a mistake when she married the man. And, and, now, and now it's, now it's pay time. And, uh, and I don't know how it worked out, but I'm just telling you. Yeah, that's a good example, isn't it? <clears throat> that foresight is sensible. <clears throat> Drugs. And maybe even alcohol and tobacco and, and the whole bit. I hope you won't get angry at me but when I say this one, but I'll, let me try to say it as tactfully as I can. But I know you're going to get angry. Please don't. Just be mature. <laughs> be mature. In Bangladesh, where I was two weeks ago, the poor people told me that COVID doesn't kill poor people, only kills rich people. Do you know why they said that? It's because the poor people are outside working on a low-fat, low-cholesterol diet, that are, and they just, none of them have heart disease, obesity, or diabetes. They don't have enough money to have those diseases. I think here in America, we don't show much foresight in our eating. We don't show some. We don't show enough. And when we don't show enough foresight, the prudent foresees the evil and he hides himself, but the others pass on. And listen, it says in the verse they're punished. Did you see that in the verse? Yeah. It's not punished by God. It's punished by their lack of foresight. Yes. That monkey wasn't punished by God. He was punished by a lack of foresight. Consequences, if you will, is what punished him. So this is not highly related to religious liberty. It's just a bonus for you. Oh, well, you know, I drew the picture for you, but where I was sitting, my view ended right here. So I really can't say, but I do suppose. You can hope it was instant, right? That's what you can hope. But when you don't have foresight, things aren't always painless. It's not always true that things are, pain that things are painless. I decided in Malaysia to try to reach out to Muslim people and I was in an elevator when one of them, uh, a lady named Hamida, very kindly held the elevator for my wife and I, which we had luggage, so it was kind of awkward to get all in there. And she just very politely did that. And I decided, what I'm always looking for, I hope you will look for this, I'm always looking for nobility. The way I think is that the Spirit isn't waiting for us to get started in people's lives. The Spirit is already working in your neighbors, already working in, in the people that live around you. The Spirit's been working for a long time, but not everyone is receptive. Not even all of you are probably receptive, and certainly in your churches not everyone is receptive. So I'm always looking for those people who are receptive. And when I see someone who goes out of his or her way to show kindness or compassion or, or that kind of beautiful character, that's someone I really want to connect with. So since she's a Muslim, it's a bit awkward since I'm a man and she's a woman. My wife was with me, so I had my wife get her, her phone number. And it worked. My wife did it. And so I got Hamida's phone number. And once you send her a text message, she doesn't know which one of us it is, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she doesn't know. And I really tried to interest Hamida in the gospel. And I'll just tell you quickly, I failed. I don't mean I did something wrong. Maybe I did. But I think the fact that you fail to win someone isn't proof you did something wrong. Jesus lost almost everyone in John chapter 6, and it wasn't because he did something wrong. It's just the fact of the matter is not everyone is going to make the hard decisions to go with the truth. And I, I lost Hamida. 
she concluded that all religions are the same and it really doesn't matter whether you're a Muslim or a Christian or a Buddhist or a Hindu, you just need to live a good life. And uh, that's more of a Hindu doctrine than a Muslim doctrine, but that, it was her Muslim doctrine. That's what she concluded. It's, it was easier for her because if she changes religion, she's going to have a world of trouble. Could die. Just a world of trouble. So before I stopped talking to her, and even afterwards I would talk to her once a year or so just to see if something changed, I went through her Facebook list of friends. This might be called trolling, but it's part of my evangelistic effort. And I was looking for someone else to make friends with, and I found a man named Muhammad that was in charge of the International Student Club in a city 40 miles from me there in Malaysia. He was from Yemen, and I thought, because he, he made some comments that looked kind of noble-minded, and the best thing is he knows English. I'm a bit crippled in language. If they don't know English, I can't really talk to them. And so I wrote to Muhammad. He was friendly. I sent him prophecy studies on Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. He loved them. I sent him one on Daniel 9. And then, maybe by providence, I was invited to speak at the church in his city. So I wrote to him and said, I'm coming to your area, Muhammad. I'm going to be giving a lecture at this address. Maybe you can meet me after the lecture about 1 o'clock. He said, can I come to the lecture? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I said, sure. And uh, he came to his very first church service. I'd been asked to... I had been asked to come there to actually speak about the anti-Trinitarian movement. But as soon as he showed up, I knew I couldn't speak about what I'd been asked to speak about, because that is not a good first sermon for anyone to hear. Maybe not even a good second or third sermon. And uh, so I just changed my sermon. And the people who invited me to speak, they're just looking at me like, you know, they paid for me to come, and, and there's no, no delivery, you know? And... Uh, but anyway, we need to prioritize people that have needs over people who have wants. And uh, so I gave a different sermon. And afterwards, during the meal, I began to review with him Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, and he could finish my sentences. He really knew, maybe better than your children know, he knew those prophecies. I had good hopes for Muhammad. He came to my house, he ate my wife's food, he went camping with us. But I'll tell you, I lost him. It was the day that Muhammad realized that if he really accepts the truth, he's going to lose his scholarship. He's going to lose his time in Malaysia. He's going to lose his family and maybe his life. He's going to have to go back to Yemen, which was in war. And the price was very high. And I really don't know for you how many of you would accept the truth if the price was high. I think for us, the price isn't so high. <coughs> And so once, let me finish the story, then I'll get to your question. Once Muhammad realized that, he didn't cut me off, neither did Hamida. I'm, I was still friends with him for a long time. But I could talk about anything but religion. He didn't want to talk about religion anymore. I don't want to talk about anything else. So there wasn't a lot of, yeah, that, that was the end of our closeness anyway, that time. But before I kind of dropped him, I went to his Facebook list and I looked for someone else there. And I found a guy named Musab, also from Yemen. And uh, I wrote to Musab. He came out to visit my wife and I. He brought a friend, Abdullah. We began to chat and 
and I'll just finish the story quickly because I want to get to the lecture. Musab is a Seventh-day Adventist. Abdullah is a Seventh-day Adventist. Zayed, because of them, is a Seventh-day Adventist. Sahar, because of them, is a Seventh-day Adventist. Sahar's best friend, because of them, is a Seventh-day Adventist. If I had given up on Hamidah and said it doesn't work, I would have lost a lot. If you begin to reach out to refugees, I've heard them mentioned here a couple times, if you begin to reach out to people that have a very different view than you in your life, I am hoping that when you fail, you won't give up. That you'll push. You need to do some pushing if you're going to get anywhere. And it, So I told you a story where I lost two times and then a great victory, but there are other stories where I lose 20 times and then a small victory. And I think those are just as good, they're not just as tellable. One of the big questions in Islam is about religious liberty. It has to do with a very famous... Oh, let me get to your question first. You had a question or a comment. No, I was going to say, if the Lord, if you love the Lord, you need to love everything. Yeah, that's a hard question. I think a lot of people say, I love God and I love Allah. And when it comes right down to the big cost, what you find out is not well enough. There's a lot of people who, who will sing praises to God, but if they have to really change habits that are dear to them, they don't love him enough for that. So I think what the Bible talks about is those who are lovers of pleasure, it doesn't say instead of God, it says more than God. So that loving God isn't really sufficient. What really is required is that you love him most. And I would say, no, they didn't love him most. Not yet. Uh, boy, if there's, still, if there's no hope for them, there's no hope for a lot of people. Uh, what I've been doing with my cold contacts is about once a year I write them again. And some of them have become warm again. Uh, that might happen for Hamida. It's not likely to happen for Muhammad. He blocked me. I can't communicate with him anymore. That was about a year after the end of our talking. And uh, so maybe someone else will meet him. I don't know. But I'll tell you, there's enough lost people that we don't need to waste all our time on those who say no. We can just keep hunting, keep looking. And uh, if I tried to, like if I had in my mind had an addiction to Muhammad so that I just try for 20 years to win him, I think it would be at the expense of Musab. Do anyone understand what I'm saying about that? Yes. Be, that there is a point to just let the 6,000 go and spend your time on the 11, and you, you just can't go chasing after the people. What did Jesus say that one time when, they, when his brothers tried to stop him, and his mother even? He said, who is my mother and who are my brethren? It's those that hear the word of God and do it. Yeah, that's sensible. Let, let me carry on because time really keeps carrying on. Uh, Amr bin Jamo. I have no idea how they'd say his name. I'll just call him Amir. And I didn't leave out a letter. That's literally how his name is spelled. Uh, Amir is a famous man from the history of Medina in Islamic thought. Uh, he was a pagan there as Islam was growing, and his wife and his two sons both converted to Islam, and he was still idolizing his idol, which was named Manit. 
the thing in quotations there. And uh, his sons were trying to conspire how to convert their dad away from idolatry. Maybe some of you have conspired how to win your parents or family away from error. And the sons were thinking, and they decided one day, I don't say it was a good idea, but it sounds a bit like Gideon, they took Monet during the night and they went and threw him on the trash heap. Now I'll tell you, in many parts of the world where you don't have nice trash collection processes, the trash heap is a very unpleasant place. Lots of decaying, uh, not just vegetable matter, okay, all right? Uh, other decaying things there, and lots of flies in that particular spot. And they threw the idol there, and Amir, when he found the idol, was so angry, he wondered who had done that, and he hung a sword around his idol's neck to communicate, maybe to say, I'm going to do such and such if you do this again, maybe to give the idol a chance to defend himself. Different versions of the story say it different reasons, but... Who can know what his reason was? He put a sword around the neck, and the sons found the idol with the sword. They untied the sword. They put the idol in the ash heap, but they tied around it the carcass of a dead dog. In, in that part of the world, dogs are really dirty. I don't mean they are dirty, but they are. But I mean that people think of them about the way that you think of cockroaches. You don't like cockroaches, right, ladies? You don't like them. My wife screams at a cockroach. So really dirty. That's about the way that uh, they feel about dogs. And when the idol was found with that dog around its neck, Amir was very angry, but his sons came to talk to him. And they said, Dad, if, if Mana is a god, why didn't he defend himself? Why didn't he stand up and stop someone from doing that? Doesn't this show he's completely powerless? And it worked. And Amir gave up on idolatry and became a Muslim. I tell you that story, not that we're glad he became a Muslim, right? Yeah, a change, yeah. But uh, I tell you that story because the story is useful when it comes to the issue of religious liberty. What you can see there is that if the government needs to defend the religion, the religion must not be true. You know, our, our very own Benjamin Franklin said so much. He said, I'm strongly paraphrasing him, that if a religion needs to appeal to the state for help, that seems like proof enough that God is not helping it. If God was helping it, it wouldn't need that kind of assistance, you know, of the state to make religious laws. And so uh, I like this story in particular because most countries that have a majority of Muslims have religious laws. And what I'm telling them, and what I'm telling you that you could share with your friends that might be Muslims, is that a religious law is like an idol. It's saying that God doesn't have enough power to defend his own religion. He doesn't have enough strength. If God really, if, if Allah really wants to defend Islam, does he really need the state to help? Can't he do it himself? You remember that idea? We don't have to go to this story for the idea. That idea is in the story of Gideon. Do you remember the story of Gideon? That Gideon destroyed his dad's idol? Such a similar story, isn't it? And the people were angry and wanted to kill him?
Okay, it worked. All right, okay, that's how I do it. It worked. Uh, Gideon wanted, I mean, the people wanted to kill Gideon, but his dad, who owned the idol, defended Gideon. Does anyone remember how he defended him? He said, let Baal fight for himself if he's really God. If he's really God, he can do it. And, of course, Baal couldn't fight for himself. Baal never has fought for himself. And uh, I think you understand. A little more story, then we'll get to a little Bible study. Do you, have you read The Great Controversy in the last 20 years? It's not the same as having read it 30 years ago. You might need to do again. Uh, in that story, you'll, you'll find that the Puritans were trying to escape religious laws. Religious laws in the UK especially, but even in the Netherlands there came some religious laws. They really didn't have a great time in Europe, and so they came to America for freedom. They came to Massachusetts and Connecticut, to be precise, the Puritans. Also, the Quakers came to escape persecution. And, of course, they started Pennsylvania. And the French, the Huguenots, they came to escape persecution, and they formed the Carolinas. And when Mary, Queen of Scots, was persecuting the Protestants there in England because she was Catholic, well, many of the Protestants escaped, and they started Virginia. But when the, when the Protestants were in charge, persecuting the Catholics, the Catholics escaped, and they started Maryland. So what you had in this country is a great number of states, each with its own religious background, that came to escape persecution. Roger Williams came to the Puritan states, but he was a Baptist. And as a Baptist, he didn't like the Puritan teachings and theology. He differed with it. He didn't like to attend their churches. He didn't attend. The Puritans made in their own little colonies a requirement that you must pay tithes to the government, which paid all the pastors. I think in the Adventist church, if it was a requirement to pay tithe, we'd lose a lot of people. And, and the blessing would disappear too, because it's the volunteer nature of it that brings any sort of blessing. Well, the Puritans made it, it was kind of like a tax. It was the religious tax, and Roger Williams refused to pay it. And they said, what? Is not the laborer worthy of his hire? That's quoting the Bible, right? And Roger Williams said, yes, from those who hire him. In other words, I don't want to support what I don't believe in. It's not for me. I think you follow. Well, Roger Williams was persecuted there in the colonies, and he was one of the ones that made friends with the Indians. That was a lifesaver for him because they, in a way, they executed him, but they did it in a way that would, make, would clean their hands. They banished him in wintertime. You know, that's, that's about the same thing as a death sentence. But, but it's not on your hands. Well, he hid in a tree, and the Indians found him and cared for him. He had made friends with them before. And when he was able in the springtime, let me just turn my phone off. Ding. They can call me some other time. <laughs> yeah, it died with, you know, an objection. Roger Williams asked the government in England to give him his own place. He founded Rhode Island. And in Rhode Island, he established something new. 
religious liberty. He said, here, you can be Quaker or Puritan or Baptist or an unbeliever or a follower of the Indian religion or whatever you like. There is just no religion here in Rhode Island. I smiling at her because she's trying so hard to stay awake. You can, you can see the muscles in her face. They're straining just, just so hard. And uh, I understand. Yes, okay. I did that mostly to help you. I thought that would work for 15 minutes. I thought that would do it. Roger Williams, uh, when we formed our 13 colonies together into a union, it was his ideas that seemed like the only way the colonies could unite because they differed on everything. And uh, so his principles became the principles of our United States of America. And so Roger Williams ought to be one of your favorite people in American history. You ought to be glad for him, the, the great work that he did. Do you remember this name, Anne Hutchison, from your American history books? At least three or four of you do. Uh, I remember what I was taught in, in history class and what I learned later about the reality differed a lot. I was taught that Anne Hutchison was antinomian. That is, that she was against law. You know, she was for no laws at all. Everyone does what they want to do. What's the word we use for that? Um, anarchy, yeah, kind of like this. And, uh, and that for that reason, she was banished from the colonies. But I'll tell you, I ended up, because of A.T. Jones's book, The Two Republics. Have you ever seen that large book, The Two Republics, about this big? If you'll get that book, you'll find a transcript of Anne Hutchison's trial in Boston or Plymouth or whatever wherever her trial was. You'll, you'll find a copy of her trial. You'll find out that she was quite pregnant when she was put on trial and everyone was seated except her. She had to stand the whole time. You'll find that they grilled her and hardly would let her talk, but she managed to get her main point out that she was not against laws at all. She was only against religious laws. She was in favor of religious liberty. So they banished her. And can you guess what state she might have went to? And she went to Rhode Island. And Rhode Island became a bastion of truth and freedom right here in the United States. And uh, so this is where your freedom comes from. It comes via Mr. Roger Williams. But where does this idea of religious liberty come from? You have your Bibles. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. I just want you to see some of the ideas. Exodus chapter 20. Only about half of you have Bibles. If you want to look at it on your phone, I won't think that you're texting. You can just pull it out. And, but if you have, otherwise, you'll just listen. One of my very favorite commandments is the second commandment. I just want you to look at verse 4 and we'll just observe some things that you might not have noticed about the second commandment before. Notice the first few words, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Do you see the word yourself in that verse? Do you know the word iconoclasm or an iconoclast? Uh, it's someone who, is a, who destroys idols. And there have been through the ages Christians who felt the way Gideon destroyed Baal, that is a model for us that we ought to destroy idols. 
But I want you to notice that when Gideon destroyed that Baal, it was his dad's idol. Did you notice that? It was his own family idol. And it was in God's nation, under God's direction. But really, God has asked in the commandment, he hasn't asked me to destroy your idol. That's not what the commandment says. It says, don't make one for who? Yeah, don't make one for me. I live in a village where almost every home has a Buddha shrine in front of it. I'm so glad I understand this principle because I could feel a burden at night to go and bash all the shrines. And it would not be a way to help people change religion. I'll tell you that would not be, it would not be a successful move there. Uh, look at verse 6. Showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's the gospel. It answers so many questions. From verse 6 alone, you could ask the question, is it enough to keep the commandments? And the answer would be no, you need to... Yeah, and you need to love God, right? And is it enough to love God? No, you need to keep the commandments. If you love God and keep the commandments, does he owe you heaven or do you still need mercy? You haven't earned anything. Does he give his mercy to everyone or is it just to those that love him and keep his commandments? Ooh, well, what about in this verse? Who, who gets mercy in this verse? In this verse, it's those that love him and keep his commandments. And the phrase before from verse 5 says, uh, visiting iniquities upon the children and the children's children, the third and fourth generation, it's of those that hate me. Yeah, it's the other class. So you're not technically wrong when you say that God shows mercy to everyone, but if you mean a saving mercy that gets you to heaven, that's not everyone. That's not everyone. Uh, it's to those. So I love the verse. It, is so, it has so much information, just simply put, in a way it's hard to argue with it. When the Catholic Church decided to modify the law of God, they modified the fourth commandment by shortening it. Uh, remember the Sabbath day, it says in the Catechism. And uh, it leaves out the information about God being the creator. And so that doctrine of God as the creator of the earth is really soft right now in the Roman Catholic Church. That They took out the information about why we should serve him. They modified the fourth. But you know what they did with the second one? All gone. It, just, it has the gospel in it. They took out the power and they took out the gospel. And what they did is they left a bunch of do's and don'ts. When you read in Psalm 19 where it says that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, that these are the main converting parts. It's the gospel and the creative power. That's the main power in the law to, to do conversion work. And that was taken out and what was left, it's a skeleton. It doesn't accomplish the thing it could do otherwise. I think you understand. So let me talk a bit about this idea and then we'll go further. There are four types of laws in the Bible. Uh, four types, if you will. There are moral laws. Those are the kind of laws that help you know what is right and wrong. Like, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's a moral law. There are civil laws. Civil laws mean laws that are enforced by the government. So, to, to make a contrast that you can follow, to lie is not really against the law in this country. But perjury is against the law. 
Perjury is punished in this country, but lying isn't. So there's a civil law against perjury, but a moral law against lying. You follow the difference between the two? A civil law is one that's enforced by the courts of the country that you're in. Then you have ceremonial laws. Those are laws that instead of putting a line between right and wrong, they illustrate a right or wrong principle. Of course, the law that says that you should kill a lamb and two on Sabbath, that is a law that, it's not that killing lambs is good. There's nothing good about killing lambs. But what's good is to understand the fact that Jesus had to pay for our sins. That's good. To special time, sp spend special time thinking about that on Sabbath, that's good. So the law isn't a law between right and wrong, but it's a law that illustrates what's right and wrong. Those are ceremonial laws. And then you have the health laws. And these have a lot to do with our current issues about religious liberty. How do you say the name of the dictator of the Philippines? Duterte? Anyone know how to say his name? So if I just call him Mr. D, that'll be okay with you? Uh, Mr. D went on the radio this week saying that he is going to imprison, jail those people, and forcefully vaccinate those who do not want a vaccination. He said that. Now, in the Philippines, the Constitution doesn't actually give him power to do that. So maybe that was a bunch of bluster. And then again, he's done some things he doesn't have power to do, so maybe there'll be more than bluster to it. I don't know. But the question someone was asking is, if the government decides to forcefully vaccinate us, should we submit or should we resist? I'm not going to answer that right now, but I'm going to say that is the, it's the reason why we need to understand about the nature of health laws. The health laws are the ones that tell you, for example, which foods to eat and which ones not to eat, which meats to eat and which not to eat. It is one of the evidences in favor of the inspiration of the Bible that the Bible correctly identified animals that are, are safer to eat and more dangerous to eat because there was no way Moses would have had information to do that. He would not have known that lobsters are more likely to be found where the sewage enters the sea. He wouldn't have known it. He would have had no way to know that catfish are not as healthy as trout. And uh, the fact that he got it right, that's just some evidence of some inspiration higher than the level of the way people were thinking 3,000 years ago. How are these laws enforced? Because a law that's not enforced is, is a lot like a lousy parent, right? A, a law that's not enforced is a lot like lousy parenting. The moral laws are enforced in the investigative judgment and in the executive judgment. That is, if a man secretly is using pornography on his phone, the government isn't going to punish him. That law, it will not be, he won't be punished for that until the judgment, right? That's when it's going to happen. He could get away with it here for a long time. Uh, civil laws can never be made up to a moral standard. You can't do that. This is the reason why Moses permitted divorce. It's not that Moses made a mistake. When Jesus said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to put away your wife, Jesus wasn't saying that Moses did the wrong thing. 
Moses was making civil laws. Divorce and remarriage are civil laws. They have to be because money and custody issues are state-controlled. Be glad they're state-controlled. If they weren't state-controlled, it'd be the strongest man versus the weakest woman. And that wouldn't, it wouldn't be a good solution. So aren't you glad that the state is involved? So because these are, moral, because these are civil laws, Moses made a civil law that is the best civil law. That is to allow divorce. It would be poor policy for a nation to not permit divorce. If a nation did not permit divorce except on the basis of, of adultery, there would be many men who would kill their wives. It's better to let them divorce. Why is it better? Because of the hardness of their hearts. But Jesus said the moral principle is from the beginning, let no one put them asunder, but God has joined together. That is, the Bible enforces moral principles in the judgment, and civil laws are enforced in our local courts. Uh, I'm glad. You just you can't expect the local courts to enforce uh, God's prohibition against yelling and against uh, anger and saying, you fool. I mean, morality is high, don't you think? Morality is a high standard, and God enforces that high standard, but that high standard is too high for unconverted people. An unconverted man really doesn't have any way to successfully control his thoughts. He really doesn't have. Maybe if he gets counseling, he might get a grip on it, but there'll be something else in his life. The unconverted man really doesn't have a way to overcome temptation. He's a slave of it. So that if civil, if the government made moral laws, made civil laws at the height of moral laws, there'd be no way people could obey them. Is, I mean, do you understand what I'm trying to tell you, the difference between the two? Let me move on to the... the, the ceremonial laws, we have them. They didn't all end at the cross. When Jesus destroyed the ceremonial laws, he also gave some new ones. Baptism is a ceremonial law. Uh, communion is a ceremonial law. We have, that. it's not that eating the unleavened bread is something that's morally right and not eating it is morally wrong. It has nothing to do with morality. It's an illustration of something that has to do with morality. It's why there's no sin in the man on the cross, the thief that wasn't baptized. There's not, no sin there. Baptism is an illustration of something that happened to that man. What happened to the man was a conversion, the end of his old life, the beginning of his new life. It happened to him. Baptism would have been a picture of it. And uh, ceremonial laws are either enforced in the judgment or in the civil courts. Or neither. That is, if they have a punishment attached to them, then they're enforced in the civil courts. If they don't have a punishment attached to them, then they're enforced in the judgment. So that if someone knows they should be baptized and they're not baptized, in the judgment, that is a sin, not because baptism is a moral law, but because the first commandment says that we should honor God above all. Doesn't it say that? Mm -hmm. We should honor God above all, and that's why 
If a man knows to do right and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. I'm trying to explain about the enforcement of the ceremonial laws. What about these health laws? So those of you who are Adventist, you might have heard some things related to what Ellen White teaches that I want to talk about here a bit. Uh, but first, let me talk about the Bible and deal with the Bible. When you talk about health, you can't really make an on and off, left and right switch. There are some health principles that are very serious, life and death, and there are others that are a continuum. Would you please use a real illustration? Yes, I will. Like, to use methamphetamines is a serious sin. I would opt for disfellowshipping someone who knowingly chose to use meth. It is such, it, it's a, a, such a destructive force in the life that it causes mothers to cease caring for their, their children, their nursing children. But what if your head elder doesn't get much exercise? Boot him for that? And if he does get exercise, what if it's 10 minutes a day instead of 15 minutes a day? What I'm trying to illustrate is that when we talk about health, not all the health principles have the same moral qualities. That there are some that are very cut and dry, and there are some that they're more like a continuum between what is best and what is worst. When it comes to how much you should eat, that is certainly one of them that it's not like any prophet pre prescribed eight and a half ounces. Right? It takes some thinking. And the way you think today might not be the way you were thinking six months ago on that. That your thinking might change over time. My wife's does. Somewhere about a year ago, she read that the proper amount of food at each meal is kind of like a somewhat open fist. I don't think that's enough. <laughs> anyway, and, and uh, uh, yeah, there you go. And uh, so, health laws, health principles, is maybe a better way to say it. Ellen White has said about them that. Uh, the health laws are as sacred as the Ten Commandments. And even to be sick is a sin. So I just want to clarify you a bit, because I think if you misunderstand those statements, you're going to go where no man ought to go. Uh, Ellen White herself was sick routinely because heaven made her sick. That's what you learn early in her ministry. And uh, how, many, how many of you have had COVID? I've had it. Anyone here had COVID? It's not, and you survived. Ten points to all of you. All right. Not everyone does. And uh, it is a sin to smoke. It's a sin to drink. It's a sin to. Ooh, are you going to dislike me for saying this? This is my opinion. I was going to say that. <laughs> it's a sin to climb sheer cliffs 
without ropes and protection. It's serious. Uh, um, there are some things that are foolhardy hazardous. And uh, those ought to be a test of fellowship. Uh, we, ought to, we ought to discipline people who cho- choose to keep drinking and keep smoking. Uh, they are denying the Lord who bought them by the way that they're abusing their body temple. But we really can't extrapolate from those serious vices to start, for me to start regulating every aspect of your life, telling you when and how and where. I, I re- we really can't go that direction. And where this is really becoming an issue of religious liberty is on the issue of vaccinations. So I have seen impassioned writing directed to me that would tell me that to not get vaccinated is about the same as killing the people who have comorbidities. You know, because I'm going to get sick and make them sick and they're going to die. And I've seen others write and say, for me to get vaccinated, every cell in my body is going to be changed and is going to become a, an abomination to God because the DNA has been manipulated and I'm going to become an abomination. Mm-hmm. Have any of you heard either of those ideas? Have any of you heard both of them? <laughs> yeah, you've heard them both. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and so, uh, do you have your Bibles handy? Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. A lot of you look angry now. You're just thinking, okay, you're just thinking, okay, okay, all right. Yeah. Huge. It's becoming huge, right? It's It's a device to the devil, in my opinion. Okay, so this is why I was brought to Michigan. So, so you just listen. I'll, I'll agree with you. Are you in Romans fourteen? Well, if I did, I meant fourteen. Fourteen, verse one. I said thirteen about twenty minutes ago. We'll get to that some other time. Receive one who is weak in the faith but not to disputes over doubtful things. That principle, let me say that in more simple English. You and I really don't have to agree on many things. We do need to agree on some things. If we are going to be united in church fellowship, we need to agree that the world was made in six days and that the Sabbath is a sign of sanctification. We need to agree that uh, Jesus came back in a literal way and fairly soon, relatively soon. We need to agree on the three angels' messages if we're going to work together to share them. We need to agree on our mission. But there are very many things that though we agree on the fundamentals, you might put together a family of 20 individuals that agree on all these things, but there's some other things that they might disagree on, even though they're equally studious and consecrated. In the time of the New Testament, one of those issues was Passover. Passover was quite confusing to the first century church. Keep your Bible open. We're going to read more, but let me explain a bit why. 
because the ceremonial laws ended at the cross, but just before the cross, Jesus kept the Passover with his... And he said at the Passover, this do as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Do you see right there a bit of confusion? So that some of the people thought that communion is not the Passover, we don't keep the Passover, and they would keep communion as a completely separate event. That's what I do. But others said communion is the Christian version of the Passover, should be kept on the Passover, and in fact is the Passover meal kept without the killing of a lamb. And both of them thought they could make a very strong case from the Bible. They both did make a case. You might say, how can you make this case? Well, the Bible says the Passover is a perpetual, a, a, a perpetual uh, holy day. That word perpetual is used. And when we talk about the mark in the forehead and the hands that is connected to the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 6, in Exodus 13 it's connected to the Passover. What I'm telling you is those who are saying we should keep the Passover, they could make a pretty good case. But those who said we shouldn't, they could make a pretty good case too, and I could make that one for you also. It just wasn't an issue that, that studious, consecrated people came to the same answer on. And that's why it's discussed right here in Romans 14. Look at verse 2. For one believes he may eat all things, another who is weak eats, the King James says herbs, the New King James says vegetables. Herbs is better. He was referring to the Passover. What do you eat on the Passover? Roasted lamb and bitter herbs. But if you're not going to kill the lamb anymore, what's left? That's what some were doing. Verse 3, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. This is like the Adventist church's least favorite verse in the whole Bible. One man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He's talking about the Passover. The Passover was the day when some people were keeping it and some were keeping every day the same. Some were eating bitter herbs and some were eating just whatever they cared to eat on that day. It was a, a, a divisive issue and Paul in this chapter didn't settle it. He could have. You know, he could have just said, it's this way or that way, but it wasn't best. Because if he had done that, we would have no way to deal with the vaccination. Or whatever other issue would come up after the canon was closed. So let's just read on a bit. Verse 6. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord and, and gives thanks to God. He who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. It doesn't mean he's fasting. He's not eating the herbs. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. We will read more. We can read more. But I hope you're catching the principle of what Paul is saying. He says, people need to be conscientious. And so if they disagree on what to do, 
they both need to do what they think is right. That first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, enforces conscientiousness. Sister, don't even tell me if this is true. I'm just going to pretend something about you, and if it's false, just keep it a secret until later. I'm guessing that our, our sister back here in front of that door believes that ladies ought to wear something on their head when they pray or prophesy. If, it's, if I'm wrong, don't tell me. I, I, need, I need you to just pretend you believe that for a minute. When, when I am teaching in some parts of the world, Eastern Europe and some parts of Africa, there are lots of ladies who believe like this. Sometimes entire conferences, the majority of ladies in most churches. And of course, they didn't just make it up. It's in your Bible. Have you read that in the Bible? The lady ought to have a covering on her head when she prays or prophesies. It's right there. So it's not like we can say, where'd they get that from? Well, we all know. And some of you are wondering, why, why don't I do it? Uh, I don't know why you don't do it, but let me just say something about it. Some people in studying that chapter have concluded that the covering referred to there is referring to having long hair. And some have, have concluded that it's referring to, an art, to some covering that isn't hair in addition to the hair. And I know people who can make a pretty good case for both sides. I, I have a position, but I think I can't, I think if you're on the other side, my writing won't be very persuasive to you. But if you're on my side, you'll say, well, that's great. You, you can just see it. I'm obviously right. You know, when you look at it, it's very easy. I'm trying to illustrate Romans 14 that if our sister did believe that way, then she needs to wear that when she prays. If she, because of the influence of all of us, would take it off, she would be doing what she believes is wrong. Yeah, and that would be dangerous. If you understand that principle, then you'll begin to catch the idea of religious liberty. The principle of religious liberty is that I am not going to stand in the judgment for you, so I must not tell you what to do. I can't do it because I don't stand in the judgment for you. You have to answer for yourself before the God of the universe, and he's not going to ask you, what did Mr. Pruitt think? Right? So that means that your conscience, to me, has to be a hands-off. I can give you counsel, I can tell you what I think and why I think, but if you conclude differently than me, I'm talking about limits, and I hope you can follow this idea of limits. Many marriages would improve if they understood this principle. Yes. If, if I can understand, maybe I'll give you another illustration from my own marriage. My wife Heidi is sick with COVID, it's why she can't come, but uh, she's at home. But um, my wife and I, we see differently about women's dress. It is interesting, maybe to you, maybe you'll just laugh about it, but it's interesting that if you compare the church, if you say that here's a group of a thousand people in the church, and here are the males, and here are the females, how many of the males think that ladies should always wear feminine clothing, usually dresses or skirts in a Western context, you'd find a pretty big portion of them, males that think that. But if you ask the females, you'll find a very small portion. Right? 
So, so you know that already. Yeah, and, uh, and so, well, I'm here and my wife is here. That's what I'm trying to tell you, all right? Uh, we don't see exactly the same on this issue. But who has to answer in the judgment for the way that Heidi dresses? Heidi. That's right. So if I understand the principle of religious liberty, I want Heidi to live in harmony with her own conscience. I could, maybe this will be sensitive to you, but I can give her counsel and suggest ideas and show her why I think what I think, but I really can't do this every day. I can't even do it every week. I probably can't even do it every quarter. Maybe once in five years is sufficient. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Uh, just let me finish a bit, then I'll get to you. That because she is the one who answers for how she ought to dress, she's the one who needs to have that opportunity. Did I just go over time by one minute? I did. Let me just finish this thought, and then I'm going to take a 10-minute break and just start where I ended when, when you come back, if you come back. You certainly have a chance to escape. The first commandment enforces religious liberty this way in requiring every one of us to serve God the way we think we should. And if anyone tries to get in between there and tell people how they ought to serve God, they make themselves into manet. They make themselves into an idol. I could make myself into an idol by trying to get between my wife and God and tell her how she should live. And she could do the same with me. So that we need to have that respect requires that. Anyway, I have a lot more to say, but I have negative two minutes to say it. So let me have a prayer with you, and I'll let you go. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you will bless us as we study personal liberty and religious liberty. I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.